Welcome to School Psych Podcast. We are live tonight and very excited for awesome topic again, uh, selective mutism. But uh, my name is Rachel. I'm a school psychologist and I'm working in the state of Maryland. I'm going to pass it over to Rebecca. Hi, everyone. I'm Rebecca. I'm a school psychologist working in the state of Connecticut. And as always, I'd like to remind you guys how to participate. If you're watching on YouTube Live, you can comment right alongside the video. We'll be looking for comments there in the live chat box. Also on the two Facebook pages, School Psych, Your School Psychologist, or the School Psych Podcast page. You can message me. You can post a page. You can comment. I'll be looking for notifications. And also on Twitter using the hashtag PsychedPodcast. We'd love to hear from you guys about your thoughts, questions, experiences. Um, and here is Anna. Hi, I'm Anna. I'm a school psych working in New York State. Um, we had two different polls going on our Facebook page to kind of generate conversation about selective mutism. The first one was about um, your experiences with people with selective mutism. Um, the lead in that poll was um, 39 people have worked with someone with selective mutism through an IEP. Uh, 37 people work with someone um, through informal consults, um, nine people through a 504, eight through RTI, and eight votes for not having worked with anyone with selective mutism before. So um, here the, the three of us co-hosts also have a variety of experiences, some with the yes frequently and some of us with not so much. Um, so we thought that was pretty cool that it also represents um, where we're at, where we've been. Um, and the second poll was about um, eligibility classifications for students with selective mutism. Um, the vast majority um, of students were classified as ED emotionally disturbed. Um, the second vote was 22 votes for general education, uh, 14 votes for other health impaired, 11 votes for 504. Um, specific learning disability and speech language impaired were both at four votes and one for autism. So um, there's a variety of, of ways to meet the needs of, of children with selective mutism. And that brings me to introducing our wonderful guest, uh, Sheila Lepkin, um, NCSP. She's a master's level nationally certified school psychologist for over 30 years. She's worked in public school districts in North Carolina, Maryland, Virginia, and Colorado. Um, her final 10 years were spent in a Title I school in Cherry Creek School District in suburban Denver. She also has, a, also has a certificate in marriage and family therapy um, from the Denver Family Institute. During her long career in the public schools, um, Sheila was the co-chair of the ADHD task force and the, for the Cherry Creek District. She developed academic organization counseling program called the Binder Doctor. That sounds cool. And created and taught a summer class for ADHD students. Sheila retired a private practice to help children with anxiety disorders and those with ADHD with a family school systems approach. Currently, she's the Colorado coordinator for the Selective Mutism Association. She helps run summer intensive camp for children with selective mutism and anxiety solutions of Denver called Courageous Kids Camp. Sheila, thank you so much for joining us tonight. It's my absolute pleasure to be here to share this information with you tonight. So how did you get interested or into selective mutism? Good question. My husband and son stutter, so I was painfully familiar with the social impact and fear associated with talking to other people. And when I worked with students with selective mutism in the schools, I really wasn't sure what to do. And I stumbled upon the Child Mind Institute of New York City and all their uh, workshop, online workshops. And I tried some of the techniques and the kids improved. 
And there are just very few people familiar with treating selective mutism in the Rocky Mountain region where I live out here in Colorado. So I decided in my semi-retirement that I would spread the word on effective treatment and find a way really to get treatment to kids in the schools. Because as we all know, uh, most of the kids we serve with emotional difficulties in the school, probably only 20% of the kids that need it get treatment. And if they do get treatment, 80% of those kids get it in the school. So we are the uh, first best hope for kids with selective mutism. And I want to share how to get them good therapy within a school setting. Awesome. I know that I'm, I'm one of them that um, I've come across probably one case per year just because I, I tend to cover a lot of schools. Um, and I always feel like I, I need I need a lot of tricks. <laughs> and so I'm hoping that I'm going to learn some more, <laughs> some more tricks. <laughs> So you prepared a little presentation for us? Um, yes, I have. So um, we're just going to start with uh, the PowerPoint sure. and um, go through it. And so let's go to the second slide here. And let's see here. So this, um, this is also in resources that you have saved for folks. And it's called the Mythbuster Sheet. Um, one of the very best websites that I give out routinely to families is Anxiety BC, Anxiety British Columbia. And on that website, they have this awesome 10-minute video that shares about what selective mutism is and actually demonstrates a few of the techniques. And I really like the video because, you know, anybody has 10 minutes to watch a video, even a busy teacher, and it really gives a very nice overview. Now, if you're in mind of a longer explanation, you can go also to Anxiety BC and find Dr. Annie Simpson uh, on their list of videos offered there. I think she's about seventh on the list. And um, she has like an hour session on selective mutism. So that's useful. And then um, the Child Mind Institute, which I spoke of earlier, has so many fine videos on selective mutism treatment. That is a great place to go. Another good place to go for resources for professionals and parents is the nonprofit that I represent, which is the Selective Mutism Association. So you can go to their website, and under events, you can get a very nice list of many of the intensive selective mutism camps that are offered in the United States. And then finally, you can go to Dr. Stephen Kurtz's website, who was the founder of this treatment when he was at the Child Mind Institute. And now he is in his own private practice. And he has an awesome video called Selective Mutism 101 at his website. And all those resources are online for folks to look at. If you go to the next slide, number three, there is a URL of my uh, Courageous Kids Camp, the intensive camp in Denver, and perhaps many school psychs have heard of the Go Zen website um, on YouTube. They have some very nice cartoon-friendly um, little skits sort of things that are for, as 
study in general, not only selective mutism. And then if you want to see a little video of what an intensive selective mutism camp looks like, you can go to that final one, abcnews.go, look up selective mutism, and you can see Dr. Stephen Kurtz's a little sample of his intensive selective mutism camp. So number four, this represents books that you can read to little kids in class about their classmate with autism. Uh, this becomes important because what happens is that the child's friends start to talk for him or her, therefore circumventing the need to even work on talking. And so you want the kids to understand that they should treat their friend like anyone else, but they shouldn't answer them for them. And, you know, what I explain when I'm working in the schools is that when a child is asked a question, you don't shout out the answer. The person who is questioning has a way of looking at it. Maya's voice is good for the little guys, for the older ones. Uh, my friend Daniel doesn't talk is a good one. But again, these books are read without the child with selective mutism in the classroom at that time because these kids are super sensitive. They're hypervigilant to being notice they have uh, social anxiety and so the last thing they want to do is be talked about in any way mm. so uh the fifth slide just has some contact information for me and you mentioned binder doctor and one of the places uh is that i offer that is at teachers pay teacher site so that's there plus you know some pbs stuff and so uh there's some shameless uh dropping of some other resources that I provide. And uh, number six, so I'm not gonna belabor what selective mutism is. I figure anybody watching at least has heard of it. But um, I think what is important to remember is that um, these things tend to run in families. So when you're dealing with a child with selective mutism, chances are you're dealing with uh, some other anxieties in the family or at least some uh, mild social, that might border on shyness of the parents. Um, to the next slide, number seven, it's uh, the incidence is changing as we learn more about it. It's, it's not unlike autism in that we used to think of autism as this very classical form. The child can't talk uh, until age three. And we also used to blame parents for this condition. <laughs> And we'll talk more about how that also parallels selective mutism. But really, um, it's like, I don't know, one in about 150 kids, and it's three times more likely for second language learners. We'll talk about that. And 20 to 75% of the kiddos with selective mutism have a language disorder, but it can very much occur uh, without a language disorder, and it's a little more, or bilingualism, either one. Okay, so that's important to know. And slide eight. Um, again, back to, back to the uh, parallels with autism. We used to think that the only way to get selective mutism is to have some horrible trauma in your childhood, but that's just not the case. Of course, it can exacerbate the phobic symptoms, but it's not the cause of it. And parents don't cause selective mutism by how they interact with their kiddo, but answering for your child reinforces the avoidance and maintains it. And we'll talk about that later too. These kids, when they give you the silent 
routine when you answer, when you ask a question. Sometimes they can look angry and defiant. Actually, they're frozen with fear. And that's a good thing for teachers to remember because the children aren't defiant. Uh, it's an act of desperation, that blank, that blank stare they give you. So uh, slide number nine. So what happens with bilingualism and language disorders is that it adds to the stress of the communication system. So if you are prone to behavioral inhibition, prone to social inhibition, it increases the odds that you will use silence and avoidance as a coping strategy for how you feel. These kids are, are organically prone to panic attacks. So this is something I really want to reinforce with our listeners. And that is that generally speaking, children do not outgrow selective mutism. Now it can sort of look that way because a lot of kids with selective mutism, they have a fear of talking to people older than they are. And so what happens is the child gets older, there's a bigger field of younger kids they're willing to talk to. But what generally happens is that these are kids who will always give, even if they push themselves to face their fears a little bit, they tend to give very short answers to um, adults or people in general. And they have very reduced eye contact. And frankly, as adults, you're not going to see them much because they are not going to attend parties. Uh, they have a very small circle of friends they're willing to talk to, and you're really not going to see much of them. Um, I think the kids that get least noticed with selective mutism, because you can select any population to talk to and not talk to, the ones that get caught the latest are the kids who are willing to eke out a few words to their teachers and respond to their teachers when they're spoken to or ask a question, but they're not talking to peers. Or they might talk to one or two kids in class. And so the teacher writes the child off as shy and does no further intervention with them. They may never even get referred to a school psychologist. So something to remember. So think of selective mutism as a spectrum rather than as an on-off yes-no decision. Because what kids with milder selective mutism will do is they'll, they'll squeeze an answer to a question their hand and never initiate. That can be a real problem because how are you gonna know when a student doesn't understand something if they're not willing to raise their hand and say something? Also, um, they'll avoid certain people and settings. Um, I've worked with kids with selective mutism who will talk to strangers freely, but as soon as they get to know, as the child gets to know them, they'll stop talking to them. So what I tell people who are testing these kids is, you're gonna have one shot at evaluating them because the second time you try to, they won't be talking to you. So on to 11. The good old flight, fight, freeze. These are kids who will freeze under stress. And if you go to the next one, there's a pretty picture of the brain like we know what's going on. Really, we think it has to do with something with the amygdala where these kids have a hair trigger response to a socially anxious situation and their anxiety will just shoot up into panic really quick. And then they have trouble lowering themselves back to calm. It takes a really long time for them to come back to calm. So what happens 
in the next slide is what I call the circular problem. This is taken directly from the Anxiety BC website that I spoke about before. And this is how it develops into a phobia about talking. So it starts with the child, say, is asked a question at a grocery store. Um, oh, you're, you're so cute, uh, little girl, how old are you? The child starts to feel the panic rising and they don't talk. So the child is silent. Now everybody is a little uneasy. The person that asked the question is wondering, what's with this kid? The parent is getting embarrassed and, and doesn't know what to do. Their child is standing there frozen and won't talk to anyone. So what the adult does, the parent does, is say to the person, she's five years old. Okay. Immediately, the stranger feels better. Oh, I got an answer. Immediately, the parent feels better. This awkward silence is finally ended. And of course, the child is now rescued from talking. They're much, they feel much better, and they will do anything to get a parent to talk to them again. And so, uh, the everyone's anxiety is lowered successfully, and now it is more likely to happen again. So, if you go on to the next slide, number 14, what you see is you get the child is having a catastrophic misinterpretation of their bodily sensations. They are having this panic attack. They think they're going to die if they'll talk. And so now they're going to stay hyper vigilant to any possibility that somebody might ask them a question. And where you ask questions the most in your day? Of course, it's at school. So it gets, it gets very difficult for the child. So if you go on to number 15, why does selective mutism get worse so much faster than say another phobia? Cause selective mutism is essentially a phobia about responding to an, a, a question. So why does it get worse so fast? It's very simple. Unlike a snake phobia where you might only see a snake a couple of years ago, you run away, mm -hmm. how many times a day are you asked to speak? Mm -hmm. Hi, Susie, how was your weekend? Oh, Johnny, do you have your homework today? Do you want to work with Mary? I mean, the questions just never stop. They just never stop. And so you are literally practicing not talking like 100 times a day. That's a lot of practice and avoidance. And the next slide, uh, I want to reiterate that some people can have selective mutism and not have uh, social anxiety. One of the ways that you can tell the difference is that if they're willing to mime out their answers. So if they're willing to be non-verbally noticed, so they're willing to um, um, pantomime out what they mean, they're willing to nod yes and no, they're willing to do all that, they're willing to go to ballet class and perform in front of other people, chances are they have selective mutism without, without the social anxiety piece. But mm -hmm. if, you have social, if you have selective mutism long enough, eventually you're probably going to end up with social anxiety or uh, something quite like it. So um, generally speaking, we're on the next slide, 17, uh, children with selective mutism are much more likely to have a variety of speech and language disorders, 
27% have an expressive language disorder, 42% have articulation issues. It's just, it becomes the trigger for the phobic prone child. So here is the toughest part. Well, thanks for telling me that, Sheila. Now, how do I assess a kid who doesn't talk to me? Well, the best thing you can do, first of all, is to get a good language sample from the parents. So have them take a video at home. They may have to do this secretly, and uh, they may, maybe the, the mom will set up a little play situation with with the child and the dad will take the video or maybe you can just get an audio but it is really really useful to see the child at home because there has been many a child misdiagnosed with autism because of the physical presence and the lack of talking that they show in the school while at home you see this incredibly animated individual with lots of inflection in their voice and laughter and great eye contact and so it's really important i think to get that video uh, from home. So this is a study, uh, number 18, of uh, having parents assess children uh, actually at school but alone with their parents. So they taught the parents to give the PPDT and the expressive vocabulary tests and the tests of narrative language. They taught the parents how to do it and then they let the parents test the kids and they also tested the child. Um, and it was a well-controlled study, and so they looked at the differences. And if you go on to the next slide, number 20, you'll see that as soon as you ask a child to say one word, even if they're able to whisper that reply to you as an examiner, as a psychologist, their score will go down. So you could think, ah, I got them talking to me and they're giving me some sort of an answer. So this is good. You are still underestimating their ability. So it's important in your report, if you go to 21, to have some sort of statement like this. Scores may underestimate ability and skills due to behavioral inhibition in the school setting. So get that language sample at home. And of course, the next question a lot of people have, because this um, difficulty is uh, not uncommon in the bilingual population, then the question is, well, is it that silent period that kids go through as they're learning a second language, or is it selective mutism? Well, the best way to answer that question is to ask the parents, because you need to know if they're talking in their native language at home. What happens when selective mutism develops, at least I found out in my practice, is that the selective mutism begins in the second language and then it quickly spreads to the primary language. And so, um, the, so what happens is the way you can tell a selective mutism is that they demonstrate some level of selective mutism in both languages. So, um, here is a concept that Dr. Stephen Kurtz talks about, and it's called contamination. It's easier to vocalize in places where you have never uh, failed to talk before, because what happens when kids start to uh, fail to answer adults, they start to develop rules around their talking, like, I can't talk to this person if they're in this setting, or I'll talk to this person if we're outside the school, but I won't talk to them once we're inside the school. They may even talk to their parent in the car, but as soon as I step out of the car and onto the sidewalk of school, I will no longer talk to my parents. So there's 
all sorts of rules that kids have with selective mutism. So that once they stop talking in the school, it can be a tougher setting to get them to talk in. Which is why if you have any inkling that a child has selective mutism, it's really important to front load your work at the beginning of the school year before they have practice their avoidance again and again and again and establish that hard fast rule that they're not going to talk in school and and parents will even um, tell you that the kids share those rules with them in um, at home so it also becomes very important if the child doesn't answer you to stop asking them questions because every question you get that is not answered becomes um, practice in not answering. And your newness um, is very uh, important. So here's the big CAM study with anxiety. I'm not going to go into that. If we have questions about medication, maybe I can take them later or online or write some answers. But to, to say it simply, um, we all know that the best way to treat anxiety in many cases is to combine medication with um, CBT for all sorts of anxiety. However, I always start to work with kids without medication because frankly, it's kind of hard to tell how kids are going to respond until you start the work. So um, I like to do that. I like to start the work and then think later about whether medication should be added on. So, I have a question. Uh, Excuse me, go ahead. Sorry, um, just to jump in um, before, just because I'm backtracking a bit. You mentioned um, about, you know, it's more common in ELL populations. Do you know why, why is that? It's because when um, an English language learner comes to school, he, he or she discovers with a shock that there is nobody there who speaks their language and who or who speaks it you know as well as they do and then all of a sudden they're pushed to communicate in a less familiar language it's a very anxiety provoking situation if you've ever been in a foreign country uh with your two years of college spanish along in spain you would understand how that anxiety surges and so if you're also prone to a phobic reaction boom you just triggered it makes perfect sense gotcha thank you <laughs> So at, um, at slide 29 um, is a really fine, well-controlled study of treating selective mutism. And I'm not gonna belabor this except to say, when you get to slide 31, that the treatment does work and kids do improve. But if you go to 32, you'll see that there's a big difference. Your three to five-year-olds um, get much better, much quicker than even six-year-olds do. So for those of you who work with, um, in early childhood settings, with child find, with preschools, wow, get in there and do the work then. You're going to find that it goes much faster and the treatment just works really much better. So on the next slide, 33, I've listed the main therapeutic techniques because now that we know that it's a phobia and we know we have to do successive approximations of exposure therapy, just like you do with other phobias, the question is, how do you sneak up on talking? 
You know how to approach spiders and airplanes, but how do you approach talking? So I am going to uh, invite over my friend and colleague, Jessica Lugo, who is a speech language pathologist, and she works with Child Find and in a preschool, and she is going to help us demonstrate skills. You're too low down there. Come a little closer. We'll come a little closer. So the first thing we're going to do, and you can't see us here because I'm uh, videoing this through my phone, is that we have a bunch of Legos. And what we're going to do is we're going to play with these Legos. One thing I'm going to do is keep some of my favorite pieces close to me because we are trying to increase motivation to talk. But at this first go around, Believe me, you're going to have to spend probably at minimum at least a half hour and at least a half hour doing this of doing what we call sports casting. Uh, at the Child Mind Institute, they call it Pride Talk. Pride stands for various things, and you can see it in my PowerPoint, but I call it sports casting because this is just what it looks like. The first thing you have to do is get the child. Uh, comfortable with being paid attention to because as soon as somebody turns their way and starts talking they freak out thinking that somebody is going to ask them a question but you're not going to you're just going to talk about what they're doing okay i have some legos here and we're going to play with them oh you found a blue lego and you're putting it on the red lego i think i'll get a blue and red lego too and i'll put it on my blue and red legos and then there's a square open thing that you have on your Lego and you're making it taller and taller. Then you're getting, oh, it's going to have wheels. That is so awesome. A window with wheels. I'm going to try to, and you're rolling it. I think I'll roll mine too. So I'm going to roll this and it's going to be so much fun. Now, those of you familiar with parent-child interaction therapy will notice that this is like step one. This is child-directed interaction. And that's exactly what we're doing. We're doing child inter, uh, child directed interaction where the child takes the lead, does whatever they want. I mirror what they're doing. I, I say out loud everything that they're doing. I show my interest and enjoyment of what we're doing. And so this is slide 34 for you guys who are looking at it. And then we go on to 35. And so what you're hearing me say do is I'm imitating every, everything she does, I'm describing everything she does, and I'm showing excitement because we're having such a good time, but keep in mind that she may not show her excitement at all. I may get the deer in the headlights and the kind of serious look. Don't let that throw you because actually after a while they really do enjoy it even though they may not look like they are. So, um, so that is a demonstration of that. It's important that you not ask any questions and you don't do something called mind reading. For example, oh, she put this open thing on top of the wheels. I do not say, that's a driving window, okay? You increase motivation to talk when you're clueless. The adult must remain clueless and not mind read or try to figure out what's in her head. We're trying to increase the desire to talk. Okay, so no mind reading. And you notice we're side by side. We're not staring each other down. This is less threatening to a child who works side by side. 
and um, new questions. Now, if you accidentally ask a question, which you inevitably do since it's part of human nature, and I always do it whenever I'm demonstrating this, I always accidentally ask a question. It's usually a rhetorical question like, you really liked that, didn't you? <sighs> redo, I can tell that you like that. Say redo with a smile, and this is something taught to me by Dr. Carmen Linus at the Adventure Camp outside Chicago, um, is that um, you want to show the child that you are very fine with your mistakes, your talking mistakes. You want to model acceptance, just something that happens and allows you to learn and you're not upset by your mistakes. Therefore, again, they sort of shouldn't be upset with theirs. So, Okay, so um, let's look at what you do if the child starts to non-verbally attempt to communicate with you. So, so hmm. you're pointing, you're pointing. This shovel is so cool. You're pointing, you're, you're making your hand go like this, you're pointing. Yes, and you're pointing again. Oh, I just love this shovel. It's so much fun. Okay. I did not mind read and say, oh, you must want this here. Well, that would thwart the whole thing, wouldn't it? Because, again, she would have found out a nonverbal way to communicate with me and bypass it. So um, we always want to acknowledge what they're doing nonverbally to describe it, but not to mind read in it any more than that. Um, if they nod and shake, it's you're nodding, you're shaking, okay? So that's also part of it. We go on to the next slide. Um, this is a good place to remember, because we don't think of this as hard. Hello, goodbye, please, and thank you are the very last things that kids will master even after they're starting to talk to you. I call them command performances because those are things that are time sensitive. You have to answer right after the person says hello. You've got to say thank you to the lady. And these have been so over-practiced and not answered that just strike them from your vocabulary at the beginning of treatment or even down the line into treatment. Ask for high fives and just completely don't say hello. You can greet a child with, it's so nice to see you today. See you tomorrow. Okay. <laughs> So we go on to slide 40, and we've talked about that and 41, and we talked about the redo. And 42 is, so you've been doing the sports casting stuff, and you've been doing it for a while, and the child's kind of loose, and she's probably laughed a little and said some noises, maybe you got some animal noises out of her. It might be time to try a horse choice question. It's the easiest question to answer, and this is where you should start. So I turn to her and say, would you like the shovel or the monkey or something else? You're pointing. Yeah, the monkey's a lot of fun. It can jump around and, but shovels can do digging, you know? So I'm just wondering, would you like the, the shovel or the monkey or something else? Monkey, thanks for letting me know. Sticker time, boom, they get the first sticker. They're gonna get a sticker for every utterance. She only whispered to me, I don't ask her to speak louder. I'm just happy that I could hear what she said. 
Okay, mm -hmm. and so that's that's where you start with kiddos. And once you get a first choice answer, would you like the blue Lego or the white Lego or something else? Blue, thanks for letting me know. Oh, this tree is so cool, and I've got an extra tire. I don't know. Would you like the tree or the tire or something else? Tire, thanks for letting me know. Boom, boom, two stickers, because I forgot to give the sticker last time. And so that's the way it goes. As much practice as you have spent uh, asking a question and the child not answering, you're going to have to spend equal or even twice that time asking questions and getting answers out of the kiddo. It's that masked practice that brings habituation. It brings habitu habituation in and lowers the chance of a panic attack and makes it just feel real comfortable for the child so that they can convince that little amygdala that it doesn't have to panic anymore. So um, let's see. We've got that. So that's the first choice question 43 slide has it. So it's important to try to avoid yes and no questions so you don't get this whole nodding gig going on. And um, it's, um, you always wait, ooh, very important. You always wait five seconds for an answer because the child is betting that they can make you uncomfortable enough with their silence that you will answer for them. I've had to wait as long as 10 seconds for a child to answer me. And um, as soon as they answer you, you repeat verbatim out loud what they said in a normal tone of voice. The blue block, thanks for letting me know. And those phrases are important to add to it because you want to validate the child for what they're doing. Try not to have a party. Oh my gosh, you talked. That's like too, too much, too much. It's too much attention on the child. So you maintain a calm demeanor. Ah, the blue block. Thanks for letting me know. And you don't even say, you're getting a sticker for talking. You just put the sticker down. The child will know why they got it. Just keep, keep it mellow. And um, let's see here. So um, if you accidentally ask a yes or no question, you can say you're nodding, you're nodding. And after a while, the kid will go yes. And then you can say yes, thanks for letting me know. Or you can rephrase it as a forced choice question. Um, do you want hot lunch today? Um, oh, then you can say, do you want hot lunch, cold lunch, or something else? Do you want the blue block or something else? You know, just change it into a forced choice question. So, um, so what if the child doesn't answer at all? Well, you always ask the first choice question a second time. You can say, hmm, I can tell that you're thinking and you can wait another 10 seconds. You can take the child to a location away from the other kids where it's a little private and get an answer to the question. Or you can return to sports casting, maybe you've moved too fast. But the point is, you gotta get an answer. Otherwise you're reinforcing the phobia. So do what you can to get an answer by taking the child to a different location, but kind <coughs> of gotta get that answer. So we're on like 47 now. One of the ways to get an answer out of a child, and this is awesome to do in the schools if you can get a parent to come in, put the parent and child in a room <clears throat> and let them warm up. The parent does a bunch of sports casting, a bunch of forced choice questions, and you get the child to warm up until you hear the child talking. And then literally um, you, you can back into a room. But first, should we demonstrate, Jessica, demonstrate the intermediary first, how that looks? Cool. 
Jessica's going to come back to, to, this is our child. <laughs> okay, you get to wear the puppet. <laughs> our child is a, a little Scotty dog for purposes of demonstration. So, um, so let's say that um, the way it may begin is that you're just kind of sitting there minding your own business, uh, uh, working on your pad because you've got more important things to do than listen to them talk. And we'll talk about how that slide in looks. But um, what we're going to show is, um, yeah, we're about on for 48, is the use of an intermediary. So, um, oh, would you like the wheels or the monkey or something else? You're nodding, you're nodding. You're nodding. So I'm wondering, monkey's a friend, but maybe you want the wheels. So do you want the wheels or the monkey or something else? Hmm. Um, tell your mom whether you want the wheels or the monkey or something else. You want the wheels or the monkey hmm, or something else. Oh, the monkey. Thanks for letting us know. The monkey. Thanks for letting us know. Okay. So talking to mom, what she's doing is talking to mom. I'm overhearing and I repeat the answer and I say, thanks for letting me know. Eventually what happens is that whisper gets loud enough. Give me a loud whisper. Monkey. Monkey. <laughs> thanks for letting us know. Okay, so eventually that whisper gets loud enough the child gets comfortable enough that I can hear it. And then the final step would be for, for the child to answer my question with mom taking more of a back seat and I'm starting to give the stickers. See, I forgot the stickers again. Never forget the stickers for every response. So, um, so if the child won't talk to you, try to find a big brother or a parent to come into school and get that parent and child talking in your office. Or the best place is the empty classroom. Because remember what I said in that skills do not generalize and they get rules about various places. If you start in the office and get the child talking in your office, you're still gonna have to work on getting them to talk in the classroom. It doesn't necessarily generalize out of your office. So the very best place to work with a child with selective mutism is before or after school or during specials when the kids are on or wherever in an empty classroom without the teacher there with the parent and the child together. And then you slowly, then the teacher slowly works their way into the room. So let's see. So actually here's a nice little chart on number 50. They can be kind of a cheat sheet for you about the steps toward sneaking up on talking with successive approximation. And we're just going to skip 51. And so you're going to start with those forced choice questions. And then pretty soon you'll be moving into single word answers. The child may lead you there, or you might just try one on the child. Then spontaneous speech, then initiating questions. The last thing that's going to come are those hellos, goodbyes, pleases, and thank yous. So how do you describe this? What do you say to kids when you're doing all this practice? How do you get them to, to buy into the practice? Of course, it's all the stickers and the... And for older kids, the check marks that they might be earning toward a prize at home. But you describe it as it's okay to be scared and still be brave. Uh, as they said in the book, The Room, I remember the mom called it being scared. Scared and brave at the same time. Or you can use the analogy of the swimming pool. 
When you jump into the swimming pool, it feels really cold, but if you stay there long enough, it warms up. You habituate, it's, it's essentially habituation. If you jump out of the pool as soon as you jump in, it's not gonna do you any good. The next time you jump in, it's gonna be equally as cold. So you gotta stay in the pool, you gotta stay in the pool and keep working on it. It will get warmer, it will get easier. Also, we talk about building brave muscles. You're building your brave. Every time you answer and work on this, you're building your brave. And, and just like muscles get stronger and stronger and it gets easier to lift those heavy weights, um, it will get easier and easier as you practice. Practice makes progress. Practice builds brave muscles. So, um, so I want to show you what, um, I'm gonna skip ahead. All this stuff is here for you. We talked about, uh, I want to just show you briefly what a slide-in works out, looks like. So the parent and child are in the empty classroom working. Bring that puppet back. Take my seat. Oh, I have to pretend something else is my phone because I'm using my phone. Okay. <laughs> this is my phone. I like to talk on the phone because when I'm talking on the phone, the kids are sure I am not listening to them whatsoever. But I really am. So I'm just coming into the room. Oh, wow. Okay, we're playing with Legos. And oh, I see you're building some. You're putting a red one down. And I'm going to put a blue one on top. And now, oh, you're getting one. And you're putting a Lego on. Oh, excuse and, me. Um, I keep playing. I just need my see. tape. Um, I'm going to put this. Let's see. Do you want to put the next one on or should I? You should. Okay, I'll put the next one on. And do you think we should put on a uh, yellow one, this a is red good. one, or oh, something else? Oh. I just got a phone call. Just, oh, just a red one. Whoa. Okay, I'll put the red one on. Thanks yes. for letting me know. I forgot uh -huh. my sticker. Uh -huh. sticker. Yeah. Um, let's home. see. So home. now so we're going to build it even and higher. Do you think we should uh, do the blue yeah, one, the red one, and, or something yes. else? Okay. Sheila is sportscasting what the parent is doing and paying the most attention to the parent. And then you add on some more blocks and more blocks. And, and, and now get now uh, Johnny has picked up a white block and now Johnny's putting on a red block. That's the next stage is sportscasting the child. And then uh, I might ask the mom some sports choice questions. Uh, Mom, would you like the red or the gray one or something else? The red one. Oh, the red one. Thanks for letting me know. And so doing that. And, and so when the child's voice gets loud with the parent again, we do just what we showed you before. And then I repeat the child's answer. And then slowly it moves to me. Okay. What I just showed you that I spent like uh, five minutes doing could take... Um, six hours to get to. <laughs> but uh, again, 
it snowballs over time. It seems like it will never happen in the first two sessions. And then slowly you see the confidence build because you're, you're approaching habituation and getting the child comfortable. And it really does happen. So um, that is called slide-in in the trade. We call that slide-in. Uh, it's also called fade-in by some, by some people. So um, I think I have pretty much demonstrated everything except one other uh, important principle on slide 66. When you're slowly moving places or people or you want to add somebody to the group, you can change the location you do the work, the people you include in your play, or the specific activity, Go Fish works real well, um, so does Legos and blocks, um, but only one thing at a time. If you change too much or get too greedy, you will trigger the panic and the child will shut down on you. And then you got to step back a few steps. Don't give up. And I mean, you may have to return to sports casting for a little bit. Or if the child has done direct questions, you may have to return to forced choice questions. So hopefully that makes sense. Mm -hmm. um, there are, there is, um, if we go to 68, you can see these kids do qualify for IEPs. Um, it's not enough just to write in school. We have IEP um, goals and objectives for kids to talk and interact with others. And in early childhood, the child might get uh, developmentally delayed uh, certification, uh, more likely that or uh, SLI. But as the child gets older, and, and in the PowerPoint, you'll see the actual um, core, uh, the national core curriculum goals that are, that the child has to meet. Older kids, like in uh, slide 70, that, those kids may get the, uh, the SED certification, uh, the emotional certification. So, um, you can serve these kids with an IEP, a 504. I've done it with an RTI when schools have been reluctant to go the IEP route. The most important point, part is to get a key worker who is willing to do the technique in the empty classroom with the child. And when I'm in the school, what I do is I often split the work with the, with the speech language pathologist. And that will both take a half hour. And um, because if you're doing this under two times a week, you're not going to get anywhere. Right. Mm -hmm. Two is the absolute minimum you need to make some progress with the kids. That you just can't reach habituation without it. And I would rather see a child for 15 minutes three times a week than say an hour once a week. You've got to spread out the work a little bit to get the results. So um, I have some suggested goals in the PowerPoint and objectives in the PowerPoint that can be used. And um, there are certain accommodations you want to make sure these kids get. For example, the warm-up uh, before, before the kids get to the school yeah. and you have a few teacher work days. That's a really awesome time to do some of the empty classroom work. Or at minimum, for the child and parent to go to school and for the parent to talk to the child in every room of the school that they can. And then uh, to, to keep that rule from happening, you know. And then uh, they can work with the teacher and do some of the classroom work before school starts. So uh, let's see. 
I do I let's go to some questions. Um, I'm thinking we'll have some um, viewer questions, but I have one um, that's popping into my head now. Um, so I'm just going to jump in there. Um, so those of us who are on campus, but one time a week or, you know, very rarely, and we're more, more consults, so we're not able to do therapy and sit down and do some of that awesome stuff that you modeled for us. Um, what's like the number one thing? What should we be communicating to the teachers? What needs to happen um, while we're not there? Or, um, you know, where, where do we go when we're not physically on campus. Right. So are you talking about what to do when therapy isn't going on or what the teacher can do? Yeah. When I can answer both questions at once. Yeah. First of all, I've trained TAs to do this work. You can train anyone to do this work. You can teach anyone to do force choice questioning and do sports casting. And uh, some of my best folks have been TAs who have been doing this work with kids. And then you just keep in touch with a Google Doc that you share. Um, the most important thing for teachers to learn is the first choice question and that they have to wait that five seconds for a response. And there has to be some sort of little payoff for the kids every time they say something. Um, that would probably be primary, I think. But again, teach somebody in the school who's going to be there every day to do the work and just consult with them. Wow. Any other question? We have a bunch of very um, uh, quiet viewers, but I think that it, 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 the role plays were so wonderful just actually watching you um, do that with a, with a, your... Um, student and a, and a second person was so helpful. Um, I think it's just a, a, something that we are all probably digesting. But if anyone out there does have questions, I'm still looking for you, so let me know. <laughs> but yeah, the really, I mean, I, I love this probably the most uh, interactive you know, podcast that we've had thus far, um, as far as you know, the modeling and everything that really um, paints a much better picture than seeing anything on, on PowerPoint. So that's exciting. Let me also add that I am available to answer questions later. All the, all people have to do is email me or give me a call and leave me a message. I'd be happy to answer questions <laughs> at a later date. And if anyone is interested in being a camp counselor here in Denver and learning the techniques, one of the best ways to learn it is to serve as a counselor. Uh, in my camp, yeah. so yeah. I would be interested in hearing from those people also. Mm -hmm. And I think we're we're close to time, so we're going to wrap up. So if anybody does have any last minute questions, really quick um, outcomes for students that come to us in like high school or junior high and those type of things, where you know, um, what what are what can we expect as far as success rate with with the, those cases? You can expect improvement. But generally speaking, those kids are often on medication. Uh, the two most common ones are Zoloft and Prozac. By the time you've practiced not talking that long, that's a terrible fear and a terrible habit combined. So, and so um, those kids, go ahead. For, for a child who does develop, you know, social anxiety, are you, do you always have to treat the selective mutism first? Because I can't imagine... Um, you know, how CBT therapy would happen 
if a student wasn't speaking. So is it always sort of the primary thing that you treat? Start with the selective mutism. Then once a child starts talking, you can work on the social anxiety. But, but the intense panic and fear of selective mutism needs to be tackled first. Um, thank you so much for joining us tonight, Sheila. This was like the best ever. I don't think I've ever like smiled and like appreciated our guests. The work is very rewarding and it's been my immense pleasure to share this with everyone. And I just want to give a shout out to my friends at the Colorado Society of School Psychologists and my buds at Denver Family Institute. So thank you very much for letting me share with you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Yep. Um, so uh, just stay tuned, everybody, um, for our next episode. We've, we've got Easter coming up, um, but we'll be posting um, what our next topic is going to be probably um, after that. So um, thanks, everybody, for watching. Good night. Good night.